Welcome to Smith Weekly Discussions, an occasional program for our readers and listeners of Smith Weekly Research. Please note this program is a private discussion and everything contained herein is for entertainment and educational purposes only. With that, we hope you're in a comfortable position, along with your favorite beverage, to enjoy the discussion. Before we get into our talk today, we want to say thanks for our questions coming from our audience at Smith Weekly, including Luke A, Jared W, Paul M, Levi B, Jackie A, and Dave V. Marco Day is our guest today. Mark is founder and chairman of Vancouver-based Oxygen Capital, a mining-focused group that provides an umbrella for building out individual natural resource assets. So far, Oxygen has nine companies on the record, including five sold businesses consisting of Frontier Gold, Aurora Energy, Blue Gold, True North Nickel, and True Gold, totaling around $3 billion in value. The remaining four companies include Pure Gold, Liberty Gold, Discovery Metals, and Sun Metals. Mr. O'Day, we appreciate you taking the time with us. Oh, thanks, Andrew. Really appreciate being here. So, Mark, let's start off by having you take our audience through your day, from business to personal. Tell us about the routine that you do. Well, it's it's probably not unlike a lot of people's routines. Um, you know, I get up early. I'm usually up around and at them around six or six thirty at the latest, and getting caught up on on emails and sort of the day's work and kind of just it flows from there oftentimes as you all know the things you have planned for the day don't end up happening the way you anticipate you're dealing with other things that are that are emerging but you know right now the the roster is pretty full in my life um, and business life we've got four public companies that are active and and demanding and, and doing exciting things so I'm involved in all four of those so my days are pretty full and then on a personal note, I've got a, a full family here. I've got a wife and three lovely kids, and so that keeps me pretty busy 24-7. Mark, aside from the natural resource business, tell us what other things you like to do and like to be involved with. Um, my my life outside of work is, uh, you know, I think it's pretty important to have a life uh, outside of work. And, you know, it's pretty common to, to have work consume your life and um, so it's often challenging to kind of extract yourself and and pursue other interests and hobbies but I've I've got a I think a pretty full rich life of, of hobbies and interests so I've got you know fishing is a big part of my hobbies I love getting out on the water and doing a lot of boating I've got I've got a rock and roll band right now which is uh, which is super fun I haven't had that since high school so a bunch of us in our 50s have uh, sort of cobbled together a four-piece band and we're, you know, trying to get together every few weeks and do some rehearsing, um, you know, travel and spending time with the family. I'm coaching, coaching Little League uh, for my son who's 10. So we're just about to get into uh, the playoffs here and, you know, big fan of my two daughters and their sports and activities. And of course, my lovely wife, Victoria. Excellent. Well, I can certainly relate to the uh, to the wife and kids part of it, and and certainly uh, being from Oregon, the uh, the fishing environment uh, that you would expect in the Northwest and the different uh, places you can go to to really find a, a peaceful place to go fishing when you're all alone. Uh, really, really fantastic. Well, I appreciate you sharing that with us. So I want to go back to for a moment back to the oxygen company history. Walk us through your favorite company's success thus far and what you learned from it. You know, there's been so many roads we've gone down and so many interesting stories to tell as far as the various companies that have been involved with and, and helped create. 
And you know, some have been more rewarding sort of financially than others. And but to answer your question, I'll 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 stick with the one that was sort of most personally gratifying to me from a satisfaction point of view, and that was True Gold. And what I loved about the True Gold experience was the fact that we took this opportunity, this asset, this project, this resource in the ground, and turned it into an operating mine in about three years, three and a half years. So in an incredibly short period of time, in a very, very challenging time in the market, from 2013, 2014 to 2016, we took an incipient resource in West Africa, of all places, and took it through permitting, financing, and growth, and construction, and we poured our first bar of gold in 2016, and the company ended up being acquired by Endeavor from us in in sort of mid-2016 and hit commercial production in late 2016. So we we weren't just, you know, project entrepreneurs and, and project flippers. We actually took this project from its inception all the way through construction and all those hurdles and came out the other end as an operating gold mine. And I found that incredibly satisfying. And in fact, it's, it's something we're about to do again at Pure Gold. And it's following the same sort of trajectory in terms of its evolution. We, we picked it up um, four years ago and have spent four years de-risking it, adding value and getting visibility on production. And we're about to enter the construction phase of that project. Well, certainly going to be interesting to follow that, and and certainly the True Gold story uh, I followed uh, quite a bit, and, and and the challenges that occurred there, and and uh, how you guys overcame all those, and really really impressive, and and certainly it'll be exciting to see what happens with uh, with Pure Gold going forward here, being the most advanced uh, advanced of the companies. So, Mark, we know the natural resource markets are among the most difficult and cyclical markets. What insights can you share about market cycle timing? What indicators do you look for in a turning natural resource market, and how should investors approach the sector? You're, you're absolutely right. This is such a cyclical business, and getting the timing right can be so key to um, to your success. And I, I've often quoted a uh, a quote that I love from Miles Davis, which is, "Time isn't the main thing. Time is everything." Obviously, he was talking about music and getting your time right, timing right with music, but it applies equally well to our industry, this cyclical industry. And um, the, the last seven years, six or seven years, we've been in this pretty stagnant full mar- uh, bear market, and and it's been hard on a lot of investors. It's been hard on a lot of mining companies, and they've been forced to make modifications to their business plans and sell down assets to shore up their balance sheets and high grade some of their deposits and stuff like that. And at Oxygen, we've been able to, because we've had sort of long been able to access and, and, and uh, get repeat investments from some good long-term shareholders, we've been able to stick to our knitting. Um, And that is building good projects in good places, even during the tough times. So my view is that, these bear markets are an absolutely beautiful opportunity to build your inventory, your pipeline of projects, and get them ready to serve up as the market turns and investment starts flowing back into the sector. The group of companies or the company that has the best projects in the best places are going to launch and vault out of that trough uh, the hardest and, and realize the greatest 
upside. And that's what we've been focused on doing over the last six, six or seven years at all of these companies at Oxygen is take this opportunity, buy assets cheaply or as inexpensively as you can, invest modest sums of money into de-risking them and getting them ready to serve up to an industry or market that's in desperate need of growth. And, and that's the function that we are serving at Oxygen. And I think it's a great business plan. Talk about patience for a moment. How important patience is from an investor standpoint and really from some of the mining companies as well? What's your view on patience and, and, and what can you share about patience with investors? Well, this has been a few years demanding a lot of patience uh, for everybody, for the mining companies, staff and morale and, and you know CEO's leadership and, and staying the course. And from an investor's point of view, um, you know, having faith in the fact that that while this business is cyclical, it is going to turn. And I think there's going to be a fundamental, I really do believe that there's going to be a fundamental renaissance in mining as end consumers and as investors in other sectors recognize the fact that metals and mining are needed across so many aspects of our modern life, whether you're you know, you're on your iPhone or your laptop or your, your satellite phone, or your, your, your electric vehicle or whatever it might be, there's going to be an epiphany, I believe, a bit of an awakening that without mining, none of this stuff's possible. Everything that we count on and rely on and enjoy for our quality of life, our connectivity, our green energy movement, all of that requires metal. And I mean, when Tesla starts publishing articles about insufficient cobalt and copper supply to, to, to fuel their, their batteries, you know that there is about to be, I think, a sea change in perception about the role of mining in, in, the, uh, in the world today. I want to cover that because that was something that I wanted to discuss with you. So, so we as humans and our desire for advancement have a longstanding core relationship dependent upon energy, environment, and mining all of which make up the cornerstones of our basic needs. So what is your view on that mutual relationship between these components? And let me just add one thing before you answer. You know, another, and this is not mine, uh, this is somebody else's, and I, I don't know who it is to give exact credit to, but I can tell you that, uh, that Ron Thiessen at Northern Dynasty mentioned this to me when we talked. But if you look at a cityscape, uh, look at the, the major concentrations around the world of big cities, materials, a concentration of materials. And you look at this cityscape, maybe perhaps on a sunset when the air is clear, that city is really nothing more than a mine upside down. What do you think about that? Mm -hmm. And what are your thoughts on energy, environment, and mining all working together? I think we're all part of the same ecosystem and we just, we're not realizing it yet, right? It's not us against them or the environmentalists against mining or consumers supporting the environment and, and being negative on mining. There needs to be a realization that we're all part of the same ecosystem. We're just at different parts of the supply chain along that ecosystem. When people think about, and I agree with Ron's statement, and, and you know, it's, it's absolutely correct. And so when people think about metals, what do they think about? They think initially, they think about the obvious applications like ships, airplanes, cars, steel buildings, maybe jewelry all the things that are kind of, you know, the mainstream concepts when people think about metals. But I also think that there's going to be, there needs to be a realization that metals and mining have far more diverse uses 
in particular in technology than we're giving them credit for. Like 34% of the gold consumed in the United States last year was for electronics, which is staggering. Right? Gold, is, for example, is generally viewed as a, a hedge against inflation and it's a currency, it's a proxy for, for money, and it is, and it's always going to be that. But it's also got really important industrial uses that is increasing the demand on this metal. So, you know, it's in your iPhone, it's in your laptop, it's in circuitry and airbags, it's in satellites, it's in laser eye surgery, it's in all of these things that we use and take for granted on a day-to-day -day basis. It's up to us to point out to the end consumer, who are ultimately going to be the supporter and hopefully investor in this space, how much their life depends on mining. And it's not just, I mean, it continues to be the big obvious things like the buildings and the airplanes and bridges and railways, that's, that's fundamental. But it's all the other invisible stuff that people don't recognize. Even when it comes to green energy, for example, I mean, how many metals are in a solar panel? There's about 20. How many are in a wind turbine? You know, about the same, you know, the amount of copper and cobalt that goes into the electric vehicle batteries and, and all this sort of thing needs to become a conversation that people start talking about and recognizing that they can feel good about their devices and their way of living and their pursuit of green technologies and, and a greener world. They can feel great about that. They can feel great about the environment and the impact they're having on the environment, but they can also feel really good about supporting mining companies who are themselves wonderful stewards of the environment and probably the strongest environmentalists out there anywhere. I mean, it's not the guy riding the unicycle with solar panel on his back that's the environmentalist. It's the, it's the industry that's actually living in and working with the land and understanding how to manage impacts as they extract the metals that society needs. Well stated. So you're a geologist. I want to ask you about global warming, which is kind of now a little, a term little used in mainstream, but is associated with kind of a rebranding called climate change. From the view of a geologist who studies things that are really super long term beyond most people's comprehension of, of time, what are your thoughts about this popular term and the issues surrounding it in the context of the geologist view? Well, I mean, it's a good question. The, the, the way to answer it, I think, is in, in reference to wavelengths. So if you, if you look, if you picture a sine wave, the ups and downs of a sine wave, that cyclicity has been going on in geological time forever. And the peaks and valleys might be 50 or 100,000 years apart in terms of fluctuations, major fluctuations in, in temperature and sea level and ice and all these integrated factors. So that, that has happened forever in geological history and will continue to. And then on top of that cycle, I mean, there, there are man-made influences that are altering that peak. I think that's sort of indisputable. Um, and we often get the two mixed up, um, you know? So yes, geological timescales indicate clearly that the earth is not a stable static environment that never changes it's constantly changing and sometimes it's catastrophic and sometimes it's much more gradual so that's that's a fact that's the reality but we also need to be sensitive to the fact that we are and have had an impact on the environment i'm not sure what kind of remedies will work in terms of curtailing 
curtailing output. I don't think taxes work as a way of reducing people's reliance on fossil fuels. I don't think that's a viable strategy, but I mean, that's a different topic altogether. But, you know, we've got to be sensitive to the fact that, you know, this is, this is our one earth and we need to protect it. Um, and we need some practical solutions to doing it. And I suspect that um, the results of our mitigation measures for environmental change are going to take decades or a century to play out. I want to continue here on this subject for just a moment because we're talking about climate change. We're talking about energy. What is your view on nuclear power and does it have a key role to play going forward? I think so. I mean, I'm a huge fan of, of nuclear power. Um, it is the only, in my view, today, technology can always change, but it is the only ultra clean base load energy out there. I mean, other than hydro, but you've got to, you know, impact big valleys and, and, and have a big environmental footprint with respect to that. I mean, that's obviously clean energy. Um, and nuclear is the only other one. Um, you know, so I'm a big fan of uranium. I think, I think it gets a bad rap. You know, it's been branded poorly. Um, you know, it, but it's, you know, it's got zero emissions other than steam, which is benign. Um, it goes forever. We've got lots of supplies of uranium. It could power the world. It could power the world in a safe, clean way forever. So I want to talk about uranium because you brought it up now. What are your thoughts on uranium today? And is this sector a place that you are considering returning to? I had a foray in uranium in the mid-2000s. So from about 2004 to 2010 or 11, I ran, I founded co-founded and ran a uranium company called Aurora Energy. And this was around the time when uranium was starting to move and it had its big spike and it went from, you know, $15 a pound to, I think it was over $130 a pound. And, you know, lots of uranium companies emerged on the scene and we were one of the few real credible ones in the sense that we had a real big hard rock uranium deposit in Labrador called Michelin. And over the course of a few years, we drilled off, I think at the time, it was the 10th largest hard rock uranium deposit on the planet. It's been overshadowed by other bigger ones since, but at the time, it was, I think it was ranked 10th in terms of size, and it was about 130 or 140 million pounds of open, pitable, and underground uh, uranium there that we drilled off. And it was exciting. We were taking it through an environmental assessment, and you know, ultimately, it never got there. But we we got great insight into how the uranium market works, you know, how contracts and offtakes are, are structured, the roles that utilities play, and, you know, got fully immersed into and indoctrinated into the benefits of uranium to create a better world. And I still believe that wholeheartedly. We're just unfortunately in, a, in an era right now where it's anything but uranium, it seems. It's every kind of alternative form of energy, which isn't nearly as efficient or capable of baseload electricity as uranium. And the utilities, frankly, aren't really helping the situation either because, you know, they're happy to see the prices depressed because they're under the illusion that, you know, they'll have supply forever when in fact that's not the case. And they, they for very little cost to them, they could play a meaningful role in, in bumping up the price of uranium and making a lot of deposits more viable. 
I hear what you're saying, certainly. And I think there's a, a severe shortage of, of the talent and expertise needed today to actually get those deposits, build them out, commission them, and then deliver yellow cake to the utilities. I think that's where the, the next shortage comes. And, and certainly, uh, talent management team talent in the sector is significantly lacking. And so that's why I mm -hmm. wanted to to mention that but take us back for a moment to aurora just just briefly tell us tell us about uh what you thought when you looked at the sector and you acquired that project what were you thinking about the sector just a general high level overview and then tell us how the transaction with john borjas paladin came about sure so as i got immersed into the sector and learned about it because i went in fairly cold and but learned about it as quickly as I could, what what struck me and what struck all of us at the time was the the supply demand imbalance, and it seemed very much like, you know, in the coming years, um, supply was going to fall off cliffs, and there was going to be this big gap that needed to get filled, and that was going to come from new supply from new operating mines, and and the Michelin deposit owned by Aurora was going to be one of those key deposits that filled that gap. And we even took it so far as to, you know, we we toured and visited and got to know and hosted site visits for many, many utilities around the world in, in the U.S. And, and in Europe, in fact. And we're going down the road of of trying to sign or secure some offtake contracts at at the time. It was uranium was trading at about 120 bucks a pound. And we were trying to sign some long term contracts in the 60 to 80 dollar a pound range, which in, in in hindsight would have secured the the, the profitability of this operation, and it, it would be a mine today. Um, that never actually happened, but it was it was definitely our goal to do that. Um, so what happened in the case of Aurora was sort of an unfortunate event, and we got blindsided by the local population of of Labrador, and they put a three year moratorium on uranium exploration, which killed everything. And so investment exited the space. It happened at around the time of the global financial crisis, roughly. And so you had this double whammy and then uranium prices started to decline at the same time. So there was this sort of confluence of, of negativity started to, to come over the space and, and our project kind of you know went from a billion dollar value to a hundred. And Frontier, which I was CEO of at the time, as well as Aurora, took Aurora private and tucked it inside of Frontier and kept it uh, alive and well with the team intact and, and continuing to advance the project. And ultimately, uh, Paladin, we, I'd known John for a long time and we I know he'd liked this project. It was one of the few good hard rock mining projects in Canada in the uranium space. And uh, we struck a deal for, I think it was $250 million in Paladin stock, and we sold the asset to him in 2011. Excellent. I appreciate the insights and, and telling us the, the background on that story. So I want to move to another subject, community outreach work and gaining what is often referred to now as social licenses. What is your take on this important aspect when building out mining assets? Well, I mean, one of the challenges that our industry faces is that a lot of the skills uh, around the, the softer issues, the above ground risks like social acceptance and community support and that kind of thing are left up to the mining companies. And oftentimes we're really equipped to deal with that, uh, some of those softer issues. I mean, we're used to dealing with the underground, the subterranean risks, 
and making sure a mine works from that respect. And but we're having to play catch up here pretty quickly on building capacity in house to become experts at the softer issues and the the above ground issues um, because the government's not helping in that respect. It's left completely up to the mining companies or the resource companies. And so what I've learned over the years is that it doesn't matter where you go, you know, whether you're in Africa or Turkey or the U.S. or Canada, generally humanity, you know, communities, you can picture it yourself, they all want the same things. And, and that is, you know, they don't want the environment destroyed. First and foremost, they want opportunities to share in the economics of this thing. They want jobs and, and career enhancement and job opportunities and they want a, a life that's improved for their kids and, and so with those as sort of the, the big buckets that humanity uh, requires then you sort of approach your projects like that and if you get those things at least right or more or less right at the beginning of a project and um, you've got a, a much greater chance of success Jurisdiction. Mark, we've seen you try your hand with various places on the planet and so far with its success. What key jurisdictions do you like today? And tell us what might be some places you will not set up shop. Well, we have lived by the sort of the ethos or the mantra of good projects in good places for 19 years now. And by that, I mean, by good projects, I mean projects that have the attributes of becoming mines or economic deposits. If they don't have those, then there's zero point in continuing, drop the projects and move on. So it's got to be a good project. And then it's got to be in a, in a good place. It's got to be in a place that you can do business, you can operate in, and you've got a high probability of success in, in, in actually getting a mine permitted. So we'll call those tier one jurisdictions. So, so good projects, district scale opportunities in tier one jurisdictions is how we see the world. Um, other companies are, are much more comfortable taking on more geopolitical risk. Um, we're not. You know, oftentimes you can go into a place and it can turn bad and you, you make adjustments accordingly, but we go into jurisdictions with our eyes open and can we or can we not operate in this jurisdiction successfully? If we can and we like the project, then we, we go for it. I think in today's, in the context of today's geopolitical risk profile, we've kind of pulled back to North America. We're focused, for example, in Red Lake, Ontario, for a reason. We're focused in North Central British Columbia for a reason. We're focused in the Great Basin in the United States, in Utah, Nevada, Idaho, again, for good reason, and Northern Mexico. Still falls within that uh, jurisdiction of good places. Excellent. No, I, I appreciate your you offering the views on that. I think it is important for investors to pay attention to to what are good jurisdictions and, and ones you should really stay out of. And, and you guys have been really successful, uh, even managing perhaps questionably some tough times as well in some jurisdictions, but still making it a mm -hmm. success, which is tough to do. So I want to yeah. discuss another topic. Um, I want to discuss cash and the use of debt when building a natural resource business. And then also, how important are these instruments? And do you believe that how you manage cash and debt from both a business side and a personal standpoint should be the same? How do you see this? How do you see cash and debt when you when you apply it to your own life and also to the business? You know, I think you, you have to answer that question. I'll start with the business side of things. And you have to answer that question from the point of view of cost of capital, cost of 
capital with equity compared to debt as well. And, you know, at times when companies are trading at, you know, one and a half to two and a half times NAV, you know, by all means, raise equity, raise equity all day long. And that's what it's there for. It's trading at a premium to your intrinsic value. Use it and get fully funded that way would be my view. At times when equity values are extremely depressed, but you have a good project, I think the opportunity to put on debt that's well-structured, that's not super expensive, is the right thing to do from the perspective of saving and preserving value for the equity owners of the company. And I, for example, am a large equity owner in all of our companies, one of the largest in, in all of them. I, I invest heavily in, in my own deals, as any entrepreneur should, and I want that value preserved. I don't want it destroyed and diluted out of existence through um, big equity raises at super depressed prices relative to NAV. So at times like that, if you're going to continue building your business, sometimes you have to put on debt that's carefully structured or other forms of, of funding that preserve the equity value of the company. And how do you how do you see that when you apply it to a personal side? Um, give us give us your thoughts on that uh, and how you manage your businesses, and also how that really uh, translates from how you manage yourself personally as well. Well, generally, I've, I, I've managed my businesses more or less debt free. Um, they they've been funded other ways, and I try and live the same way. I mean, I'm not a guy who who uses a lot of leverage. Um, if I don't have it, I don't spend it, and and I don't. You know, I'm not a big borrower. And I agree 100% with what you said there. I think there's some good points, and, and a number of people in the in the sector uh, should should take those those points of wisdom. So I want to talk about another subject. So you've you've hung your hat uh, for quite a while with Oxygen Capital. What are your future plans and endeavors inside or outside this business over the next decade? So I see myself still remaining very involved with the mining industry and oxygen over the next decade. I mean, we've, my goal here at oxygen, along with my partners is to build a, a mining powerhouse. And we've built nine companies over the last 19 years. Four of them are vibrant, successful companies today at various stages in the revolution, but they're, they're all backed by great leaders and great boards and they're funded. So they're all going to evolve and advance. And I'm going to be a part of that evolution. And I can see the group continuing to expand and, and look at opportunities to to add value to shareholders. Um, the you know the the world is changing and you know we're going to need to change with it in terms of access to capital and continuing to look for good projects and good places. But you know as far as my role goes as well, I think it's important that uh, you know we we take on. The responsibility of being spokespeople for the industry, you know, bridging the gap between, you know, the reality of mining and what it's needed for and maybe the perceptions out there that mining is not a great thing to be in. So trying to bridge those gaps that 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 um, cognitive dissonance, we'll call it, between um, the perception and the reality of, of mining, I think it's important that we, we develop spokespeople to help the business. Well, that's great, and it's it's good to hear. And, and certainly, you're you're fairly young, Mark, so that's it's good to hear you're going to hang around for a while and really continue to build this out in a strong way. And uh, it's a good thing to know that uh, we won't 
we won't expect you to be starting up any any new record label and rock band anytime soon. <laughs> Maybe as a sidekick. <laughs> <laughs> so why should why should uh, why should investors be looking at the suite of oxygen companies now? What would you say to potential investors out there? Well, each of them has their own attributes, Andrew. So um, you know, in the interest of time, I'm probably not going to talk about all of them, but you know, I'll flag and I'll flag a few. So first and foremost, scarcity is is a theme that is permeating our industry, the scarcity of, of good projects out there. If our if our industry need continues to grow, it's going to need resource growth. And there is a scarcity of good projects to feed that growth. Oxygen, every one of our companies in oxygen is capable of feeding that growth. So from a, whether we do it ourselves and build our own mines, and you become investors in that entity for that reason, or whether we build these these assets up and then sell them into that demand for growth, and you're part of an M&A transaction and an acquisition, that's another great reason to be an investor in any of these companies. And this isn't investment advice at all. I just want to caveat that, but this is my perspective. You know, so pure gold, if you want exposure to near-term production, of high-grade gold. In fact, it's the highest-grade gold development project in Canada today. Pure gold is a great investment. If you're looking for exposure to uh, U.S. gold, uh, Liberty Liberty has three past-producing open-pit heap-leach gold deposits in in Nevada, Idaho, and Utah. And you know we're aggressively drilling them. We're making them big and wrapping economics around them. And it's it's arguably one of the best pipelines of U.S. gold projects of any junior explorer out there today. Um, Sun Metals uh, last summer drilled one of the highest grade copper gold discovery holes in Canada in 2018. It was 100 meters of 5% copper equivalent in a project in north central BC, so very well located, high grade. It was a disruptive discovery and we're about to get back in there this summer and follow up on that discovery and look for increased tonnage and, and continuity. And it's a story if you're looking for uh, sort of the sizzle of a, of a new discovery, that's a great one to, to, to look at. And finally, Discovery Metals, we're in Northern Mexico, focused on very similar things to Sun Metals, high-grade polymetallic deposits in a good jurisdiction. And we're just awaiting final permit on one of our projects. And once we get that, we're, we're anticipating a drill program. So they've all got their attributes and they're all at sort of different stages in the revolution, but, and, and relative to their sort of intrinsic value, they're all inexpensive. Well, I would say that, uh, all of these companies are highly attractive for different reasons. Um, certainly, uh, and, and a suite of, uh, the best jurisdictions in the United States in the case of Liberty Gold and Pure Gold as well with what they've got going in Ontario, uh, Discovery Metals and Sun Metals, uh, really fantastic setup in that case. I want to ask you one other thing real quick that just kind of came to my attention when you were speaking. If you had to choose between a management team or a project, what do you see is really the better piece of those? Is it is it really that grade is king or is it perhaps that management first is king, and then we can look at the project second. What's your thoughts on that? You know, unless you've tagged into something that is so truly unique and it's in its the 99th percentile of that deposit class and it, and it is management proof, <laughs> then, 
then I would always go with management, right? And backing management doesn't mean, in my view, backing management doesn't mean that management is going to get it right the very first time. Backing management means that if the first project they're working on fails, you've backed them because you have faith in the fact that they're going to backfill that with another project as quickly as they can, and maybe that one will win. So they've got the tenacity and the deal flow and the access to capital to make something a success, even if the first thing fails. Well, I would certainly say that the audience should should check out the, the Oxygen Capital website and, and check out what Marco Day is up to. Mark, we really appreciate you taking your time today to share your thoughts, insights, and wisdom. It was a great discussion. Thanks. I appreciate your time.